show features Tyler Fornis and Deshaun Vaughn as they talk your Minnesota Vikings with you, the fans. Hello and welcome to another episode of Climbing the Pocket Mondays, your home of making Mondays purple. I am your co-host Tyler Fornis and with me as always uh, is Deshaun Vaughn. Deshaun, how are you doing here this evening? I am great today on this news-filled day for all Vikings fans. We had a lot of things go down today and a lot of stuff to talk about. Absolutely. We have our trusty producer, Dave, who is uh, drinking down in Austin, Texas. How you feeling, my man? Oh, I'm feeling good. Drinking bourbon <laughs> on an empty stomach. Yeah. Ah, hey, you know what? Drinking your dinner is sometimes a good thing. And a man who also might drink his dinner is somebody that we signed here this morning. Longtime Viking fourth-round pick in the 2010 NFL Draft. That is Everson Griffin. He returned to the team on an unspecified deal this morning. And it it's honestly, it's a really big day because not only are we bringing back somebody who's uh, a legend, probably the best nickname of the last decade in Sack Daddy, uh, and then that beautiful piece of artwork that we have uh, from Dave here this morning. And that's just that absolutely beautiful and really epitomizes the greatness of Everson Griffin and just how expressive he is on a regular basis. We have Anthony and Dan already in the comments who are, who are excited to get this thing rolling. Deshaun, I want your thoughts. Everson Griffin back on the team. Uh, how excited are you? What does this mean? And I know you have some projections for how you think he's going to play this year. I, I love the move. Um, I'm glad they were able to work something out. I think it just adds another dimension to this team. Um, I was looking, you know, I thought Griff didn't do that great in run defense last season. And really when I look back on it, he he was still used as a situational pass rusher. But when he was allowed to play run defense, he actually did pretty well. So I don't think he's going to start. But I still think he just kind of gives them that option at defensive end. And that's really what they, when you lack that second superstar, Having the options is, you know, the next best thing. And as far as projections, I still have him. Last season, he I think he had 33 pressures and six sacks. I have him doing just about the same thing. Um, I know six to eight sacks is kind of high for only 30 pressures, but I think a lot of his play is going to come on those obvious passing downs where those pressures do turn into sacks. So when you have another guy like that who can get 30 pressures, this defensive line is starting to look really good. Uh, I compared them earlier today to the Philadelphia Eagles who kind of do the same uh, D-line by committee thing. You know, they had their two bigs and Graham and Cox. And then they had last season, I think they had four or five players who had 30 pressures and that they ended up having one of the better D-lines in the league. I think the Vikings do the same thing this year. I think they get a solid amount of pressures out of Richardson, Tomlinson, Weatherly, Wanham, and Griffin. And then maybe Pierce gets that pass rush that coaches say they've been surprised with Pierce and they've been able to work with them. I'm not completely sold that that 350 pound behemoth is getting after the quarterback. Hey, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think one of the interesting parts about Everson Griffin is last year, I believe he played around 450 snaps and he did it with two franchises uh, going from the Dallas Cowboys to the Detroit lions. And I think when you really talk about how he's going to continue to translate the lack of snaps, I think, uh, is going to 
Uh, what's the best way to phrase this? It's I don't think it's going to be an issue for him to really reach that 30 pressures and like eight sacks. Because one, he's playing in defense he knows like the back of his hand. Two, he's playing with a team here that he knows incredibly well. Uh, he knows the core guys. He has a very common familiarity with Hunter. Uh, Sheldon Richardson, they played together for a year. Anthony Barr, Eric Hendricks, Harrison Smith. And you're talking about that kind of continuity for a free agent signing in August. That's a really big deal. I think he's going to probably play around like 600 snaps. They're going to utilize him all over the field. I think 30 and 8 is a, a really good and what I would consider an accurate prediction at this point, as assuming he stays healthy, because uh, he hasn't really lost a step. Uh, just kind of based on the trajectory he was giving us with his uh, snap production last year. So I'm really excited about the move. And I think we should talk about what this also means uh, for the defensive line. We had Janarius Robinson go on IR today, which was, it should have been an expected move because he was a little bit hurt. And it's a way you don't have to sneak him out of the practice squad. If he gets healthy, you take him off. The fact that COVID-19 brought this change upon us has, has been one of the very few unintended consequence blessings in the National Football League. It's something that probably should have happened a long time ago, but it never did. And it's one thing that we can take as a positivity from the COVID era. Now, Patrick Jones is a little banged up, so we'll kind of see how he progresses. But I also think Mike Zimmer's comments earlier today really signify what Everson Griffin is going to be. He's not going to be a starter. He's going to be a rotational guy. That came directly out of Zimmer's mouth. So, Deshaun, we still have a battle for that uh, edge, too. And do we really think like this defensive line is cemented, uh, especially after this week's game? Uh, how are you feeling about it? I I think it's cemented. Weatherly played a great half last game. He really came out and he did a little bit of everything. And I think and then Wanham Wanham's kind of like he's riding like like this middle wave. He's not too high. He's not too low. He's not really showing us, you know, that he's taking a big step. And while Weatherly isn't really doing like hunter kind of stuff he's still playing well and i think that's that's good for him he played great run defense he did he multiple pressures throughout the game influenced the uh, him and watts kind of tag team to influence the uh, interception that die took back so i think weatherly earned that second spot but there's going to be a heavy rotation there so it's going to be i wouldn't be surprised if griffin weatherly and wanham kind of end up playing like similar snaps and we'll see if Jones can kind of sneak his way in there. But I think Weatherly starts out first and that's probably for the best because I do think outside of Hunter, he's probably our better best run defender and that's what you need for the first two downs. But I think he has enough pass rushing upside that teams can't just come out on first and second down and try to throw the ball on us. You're still in danger of giving up pressures and giving up sacks with Weatherly on the field. And I think that, that game against the coach, he showed that, and I think that was enough to cement that DE2 spot. I don't disagree. I think one of the interesting things about uh, Weatherly, as far as cementing his role, I don't think DJ Wanham played himself out of the job either. And I think when you talk about Andre Patterson's comments from last week about how this is going to be a battle up until uh, that first Sunday against the Bengals, I think this week kind of continued that trend even though Weatherly did play that fantastic game, I don't think Wanham did anything to harm his case. I thought I saw Wanham kind of all over the field, uh, the limited snaps that he had. He was uh, 
around the ball, trying to make plays. Uh, he didn't make a lot of them, and he didn't flash, but he also didn't expose himself as being a liability, which, in my opinion, is just as important right now. Uh, as uh, Dave kind of puts in the comments, how many snaps are Weatherly, Wanham, and Griff getting? Uh, let's hear your thoughts, guys. I want to hear uh, from you, pe- uh, from people in the comments. Let us know what you're thinking. I think when you kind of take a look at it, I would say around a a 60% share across the board for all three of them kind of feels like a smart bet at the moment, especially when you talk about how Zimmer uh, at the end of Griffin's tenure in Minnesota really liked to maneuver him and Hunter on the inside, have them be stand-up interior rushers playing like 2I and 3-tech and even going right over the center and like almost a double A-gap look. You have those those two guys there. You put Wanham and either Weatherly or Jones on the edge. Like that's a really fun dynamic combination. And you have guys in Hunter Griffin and even Wanham who have shown the propensity and ability to drop back into coverage and play the flat. So I think you can really be incredibly multiple there. Do a lot of fun things. And one of the things that Zimmer really likes to do, he loves to craft blitzes. And the flexibility that these guys give him, along with Barr's ability to rush off the edge, is really going to be fun to watch and see how he continues to develop it. I think we all thought when Dom Capers came to the team that he was going to be able to bring that. It it didn't come to fruition, but now Zimmer's got Paul Gunther with him, and those two really helped craft that uh, defense in Cincinnati during that really good run they had where they continuously made the playoffs but just couldn't quite get over the hump. So I'll be really interested to kind of see that. Deshaun, what are your thoughts on kind of like the snap situation? Are you kind of in agreement around 60% for each guy kind of feels like a semi-likely outcome? I I am. I do like I like that. I like that uh kind of that share among the guys. Now, one formation as I was rewatching a game, like you said, those guys were standing up in space. I saw Weatherly do it a few times too. So one one of the formation I was kind of thinking about was sort of like this 5-2 formation where they have those five defensive linemen, they're bringing a blitz and then they can just drop they can drop both of their ends into space and just you know, just all out blitz up the middle. Zimmer had fun on Saturday, and you can tell he was sending some some crafted stuff, and they were doing extremely well. So, um, I think they're gonna he's gonna have a chance to do all kinds of crazy things. He's gonna all guys are gonna get all kinds of pressures, and it's gonna be a fun season. Is really all I can say. Uh, sounds like you have a visitor there, Deshaun. <laughs> it's my mom. Mom, say hi. She said no, but it's my mother. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I kind of want to evolve or, sorry, dive into uh, your point on the five-man front. I believe that's exactly what I call the – that's what they call the bear front, where you have those five defensive linemen. And I'm really intrigued to see how they utilize it with Anthony Barr. Uh, And uh, you have uh, Jim in the comments mentioning that he's a little worried about Anthony Barr. I'm not worried about Anthony Barr because, one, they have explicitly said it's not the pectoral muscle, which is a really good sign. Two, uh, it's training camp when you have a guy who's been established as long as Barr in the role on the team. Like, If they have a soft tissue injury, which is what I'm projecting it to be, and I know listening to uh, Purple Daily earlier today, uh, Judd Zulget agrees, and he kind of feels the same way, I don't think we should really be super worried about it. He hasn't come out and said, hey, this is a tweak. 
And we all remember that last year with Daniil Hunter. They, they've been pretty nondescript about it. I think it's just a soft tissue injury, and I don't really think we should worry. Mary, we're glad to have you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, like, Barr is an interesting case. Like, if it were Thielen and they were just being nondescript about it, I would kind of be thinking the same thing. Just an established veteran. Just make sure they're taken care of. Uh, but Barr's use in that bear front could be really interesting. We've talked about it for years at nauseum. Barr's going to finally rush off the edge. Barr's going to finally do this. I don't really think they're going to utilize him consistently that way, but are there going to be packages where, as you said, they drop both defensive ends and Barr lines up as like a nine tech? I absolutely think so. And that's something that he can get really creative with because he can have looks where Barr drops back from that spot. And then like five looks later, Barr blitzes from that spot and Mike Zimmer does a really good job of kind of tracking how teams are approaching what defenses he's calling and adjusts mid game. Doesn't make a lot of big time adjustments, but those little ones can make a really big difference. And I'm really excited to see how he continues to utilize those unique blitz schemes. And I think I'm not super worried about Barr because I feel like if Anthony Barr is the only person who's unhealthy, I think Eric Kendrick spent a ton of time last year kind of learning how to do what Barr does when it comes to kind mm-hmm. of like that leadership role and having, because I, I believe the red dot went to Kendrick's after Barr went out, I think. Um, yeah, I'm pretty but, sure it did. So he's learned how to take over that role and he did pretty well. So I think a guy like Nick Vigil, Vigil has the most experience out of the group so I do think he would be their first guy to step, to step up or maybe Troy Dye could survive a couple of games if Barr did, couldn't start the season and then the Vikings, this is the first time the Vikings have been, oh the green dot right <laughs> the Vikings have been in that situation where they can afford to not have a guy be rushed back and I think that's a luxury that they have to take advantage of. And if if Barr is not ready, send Vigil out there. I mean, his play against Mo Ali Cox, and Mo Ali Cox is not a slouch at tight end. His play against Mo Ali Cox, the first play of the game, was great. So knowing that he can do that, I'm sure you can, you know, manufacture a blitz for him too. Or maybe if you want to blitz Chad Serrata, a little speedy linebacker, um, they could figure stuff out. They have the depth guys to figure stuff out if Barr cannot play. So I'm not super worried. About Barra, of course, it would be nice to have him out there to have the defense at full strength. What I was thinking about today, and I sent out a tweet joking about Javon Curse coming back and finishing the puzzle. I would like to see Zim have, be able to go back to that big nickel because I feel like he really liked that in the 2019 season when when Javon Curse was playing out of his mind. Even though he didn't play many snaps, but when he was on the field, good things were happening. So, but unfortunately, I don't think our safety depth has showed really the the ability to gain that kind of trust from Zen. So I think we'll we won't see that. But it'd be interesting if they go out and sign a veteran safety to be able to bring kind of that variation of the defense back. I like the idea. And I, I kind of a along with a like a big nickel aspect, I think Anthony Barr can really be trusted with a lot more uh coverage responsibilities. Now do you want him necessarily guarding a slot receiver? No, but could you trust him? Way. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, could you trust him with it like uh the second tier tight ends? Like maybe you're not gonna trust him with Travis Kelsey and George Kittle, but could you trust him against a Johnny Smith, against a Hunter Henry, uh, against a Mike Gesicki? 
Like those are names where you could be like, you know what? I feel comfortable with Anthony Barr going with them for three, three and a half seconds. And like, maybe it's not a safety that you bring in, but maybe it's a linebacker and a name that we haven't really talked about this much pre-show, but a name that I think needs to be mentioned. Uh, the Packers just cut uh, their fifth round pick from last year. Uh, University of Minnesota alum, Kamal Martin, who uh, after having conversations with a couple Packers fans, said that he was their linebacker one last year, and now all of a sudden he's off the team. So I find that very interesting that the Packers are cutting bait from probably their best pick last year, if you don't count Jordan Love, because that's still a big wild card. And all of a sudden, he's off your roster. So maybe the Vikings should make a play for him, because right now their linebacker depth is at best body. Uh, yeah. Nick Vigil is a guy who really knows the system. He know, understands how to play in this defense. But at the same time, is he worth anything? Probably not. Troy yeah. Dye is still a project. You've got uh, Ryan Connolly, who's eh. Like, that, there really isn't a lot of – there isn't any quality depth in the linebacker spot. And maybe Kamal Martin could be that guy. He is a really good athlete, but he's always had issues staying healthy. Uh, what are your thoughts on Kamal Martin, Deshaun? That do the Vikings need to bring him in and give him a look? Uh, will they even be able to get him off waivers? I yeah, I don't I don't think they're gonna get him off. Well, first they got to figure out why he was cut because, like you said, he was mm-hmm. the the Vikings the the Packers don't have great linebackers at all, and I don't really remember remember them drafting somebody to replace him or even signing somebody really. So. It's kind of a head scratcher, so I'm guessing maybe there was something internally. Uh, hopefully, all his situations are in order and he's not like in trouble or anything like that. But I don't think he, if he's fine, I don't think he makes it off waivers. Team that linebacker or or uh, even maybe a starting linebacker, and I feel like our linebackers just kind of played great at the right time for us to not pick him up. Blake Lynch came out and made several plays. I know uh, Luke over at Locked On really <laughs> likes Blake Lynch, so we'll see what happens there. I think those guys kind of stepped up at the right time for us to not go over at him. But, hey, it's camp. You got to bring in the best guys available, and I think he would immediately probably become the best guy as, at the depth position. So we'll see what happens. I think I think a linebacker-hungry team might snatch him up like the Raiders, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think kind of why the Packers did it, you know, I don't know specifics, and I'm not going to try to know specifics, but let's be honest, they don't value linebacker, which is really, really surprising because a decent linebacking core might have helped them make two Super Bowls in the last two years. Just decent linebackers. Replace, above replacement. That's it. Capable linebackers with decent coverage skills, and they probably make two Super Bowls. So that that's going to be really interesting to follow and try and figure out the why. Maybe it is uh, stemming from those knee issues he had at Minnesota. Um, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's just Brian Gutekunst is a bad general manager. And let me tell you, <laughs> I like I like the fact that he is not a great general manager. But we're going to move forward. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about receivers. Uh, Deshaun pointed out to me pre-show, and he's 100% spot on. There is a historical track record of the Vikings losing receivers and having them uh, miss game time. Uh, Deshaun, uh, like, kind of give us a historical s- assessment here. Like, kind of, like when you were looking at this, how bad is it? 
So what I, w- I was expecting something much worse because most of these games, it's Diggs or Thielen that's missing games. Yeah, I think the bulk of it was Thielen missing games. I think he missed like seven in like, I think it was 2019. He missed seven games. Uh, but the Vikings historically do a great job of adjusting to not having both guys. I, I believe the number was eight and two. And I cut out a couple games. Uh, I didn't count the Lions game when because uh, the- Thielen scored a touchdown that game, and then he went out, so I didn't count that game. But then I did count the game uh, against the Chiefs where he played like two snaps. He wasn't really there. But eight and two is solid, and their two losses were against good teams. Now that Chiefs game, terrible loss. We should never lose to Matt Moore. I don't care if Andy Reid's calling plays. That was awful. That was so bad. But then we lost to the Seahawks. That was a somewhat hard fought game. It happens, but eight and two was really surprising for me because you know the feeling out there is that if Thielen or Jefferson goes down, like the offense will implode and the season is over. But that's not necessarily true. They do a great job of adjusting, they spread the ball out because there wasn't like Thielen went out and one guy just stepped up and was just that number two guy. Number two after him was Ola BC Johnson and his stats weren't great. I think he had like one 70 yard game, maybe like two touchdowns in that entire span. So they do a good job of getting their other guys to step up. And now they're actually looking at Irv Smith as a potential target between the 10 to 20. So hopefully he'd be able to step up. But the main factor between those three years of them doing okay without having a receiver was the defense. The offense was not stressed to score a lot of points. They were beating teams because the defense was getting in the ball back and Dalvin Cook was obviously still a focal point on the offense. So I what I would what the point of the whole research was for people to kind of relax a little bit. If as long as it's not season ending, if Thielen or Jefferson were to miss a few games, the offense would be fine. I think we're just hoping that the defense can kind of mitigate some of that loss a little bit, maybe stop that team. I think Zim gets a little bit more aggressive, maybe gets a little bit more turnovers. Hopefully the special teams can pick up in that area. They just The team is great at finding ways to win when they can't win in their usual way. I think also, They're also great at finding, finding ways to lose too. Yeah, this team uh, does find a way to cause us pain, and it's it's very consistent in that aspect. Uh, I think one thing that's really interesting about the conversation of uh, the Vikings have uh, dealt well with injuries. Um, Deshaun, how many years back did you go? Are we talking just the Mike Zimmer era? Are we talking last five? So I just went back to when Diggs and Thielen were established because before then – it gets a little dicey about who's like clear number one, who's clear number two. So I believe I started with 2016 or 2017, where both guys were clear number one, clear number two. And I went on from there. Um, surprising health, which is good. I felt like mm-hmm. Diggs missed a lot more games than what he actually did. He didn't. Um, most of the most of the games missed came from Thielen when he went out. I guess it was I think it was a hamstring thing he went out with. That's where most yeah. of the games came from. Um, that was also a surprising part of the history because I felt like Diggs was missing like two or three games every year, but apparently that wasn't true. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it bodes well that these guys aren't getting injured as much. And uh, they took extra precaution with Jefferson today. He was spotted in that red QB jersey. Had this man plexiglass for practice. They were not taking any chances. Yeah, I 
I, I like the plexiglass angle. That's always going to be funny. Uh, I, I think one thing that's interesting in this conversation that we've talked about is we haven't dealt with a debilitating injury to the wide receiver core. And we haven't really dealt with a debilitating injury on offense uh, other than Dalvin Cook in 2017. And that debilitating injury ended up being mitigated somewhat because of the success of Jet and Latavius, which was fantastic for the team. But at the end of the day, I think uh, a conversation needs to be had about injury luck in the Minnesota Vikings. Minnesota Vikings on the offensive side of the ball have had tremendous injury luck since the beginning of the 2017 season. 2016 was a mitigated disaster for offensive injury luck. But uh, I think one of the reasons why we talk about offensive regression so much is the Vikings were the fifth healthiest team on offense when it comes to games lost last year. They were like the 30th healthiest on defense. So obviously you're going to expect some a lot of progression with the defense, especially with the pieces that we've added. But on the offensive side, like I think we need to honestly talk about these guys missing extended periods of time because I don't want it to happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but we need to prepare for the fact that it could happen. What happens if Jefferson uh, gets like a, a grade one MCL sprain is out six to eight weeks? What happens if Thielen uh, like tears his hamstring? Uh, God forbid what happens if any of them get a torn ACL and they miss extended periods of time and not just like, hey, Thielen pulled a hamstring is week to week. We're going to kind of see how it goes. I think this is the year where it could easily happen just because we've had so much good luck over the course of time. It's, every team gets hit with it. It's it's very random. It's bound to happen. And I wonder how the offense is going to adjust missing those guys, not for a one or two game stretch, but for an extended period of time. Because the more film that a team has on you, as far as how you adjust your offense based on your personnel, the harder it is to be successful with, without those pieces. So Deshaun, when you kind of took a look at your research, how worried are you if one of these guys misses extended time versus one or two games at a time? So when I was looking at it, so I was trying to like kind of piece it together with the teams that they were playing. And I'll be completely honest, when guys were missing game, they were not playing a terribly hard schedule. And it's not Mm -hmm. good that their two losses came to pretty good teams. So honestly, there was a lot of luck involved with these games that were missed because I think they were playing like the Giants and like the Eagles. I think they played the Chargers when they were bad. So there was Mm in the Broncos when they had that comeback. So they were playing a lot of bad teams. They weren't playing great teams. My concern is that we kind of start off hot, uh, quite like 2016. When I think I believe it was 2016 where we started off five and zero, and then the injuries Mm -hmm. just piled up, ended up going eight and eight. My my uh, issue is that we start off hot. But then we get to this murderous road towards the end of the season, and then we start mm-hmm. losing guys, and we can't keep up, and we kind of have to adjust midseason. So I'm really looking at D.D. Westbrook because his stats show that he has that ability to be a, num- a wide receiver number two. We're not going to ask him to be until one guy goes out, but I think mm-hmm. he right now is the key to stopping offensive aggression. I love that the offensive line had a great debut in Indy. I think them being better will help stop offensive regression, but Cousins still has to have people to throw the ball to. Dalvin Cook can only carry the offense so well, so long. He can win you a game or two like he did last year against the Packers, but that's not something that's going to stay consistent. So as of right now, I have the spotlight on D.D. Westbrook. 
Also on Clint Kubiak to see if he's able to get Irv Smith involved, involved enough to the point where he is a threat to other teams. So my more of my concern is that second half of the season where we're playing really good teams, are we going to need all hands on deck? Are we going to have those replacement players that keeps our offense good enough to compete? I agree with you that I think D.D. Westbrook has uh, proved himself to be a good enough wide receiver too, and he's a capable player in that role. But the biggest thing with D.D. Westbrook, um, outside of the character concerns he had coming out of Oklahoma, is he has had really bad injury luck himself. Like, what do you need to see from him coming into week one that he's healthy enough to be able to, like, that we can expect him to be able to assume that kind of role um, if one of these guys goes down? I, if I'm in odds with you, I don't even know if D.D. Westbrook plays week one. They, they're doing really well to bring him in slowly. They understand that his value stretches far beyond just, you know, the first couple of games. So I think it's good that they're, especially because Jefferson is okay enough to play, that he's definitely going to be there week one. I think it's okay to bring him along slowly. I just, I wouldn't rush Westbrook. He's coming off a bad injury. He's, and I think they realize that he is kind of going to be the key to this offense taking that next step and being that top five, maybe offensive, the offensive line does kind of solidify itself. So I would not feel super comfortable playing him week one. I think the Bengals are a bad enough team. They're, I think they're also dealing with some injuries. They're off, their offense isn't really gelling correctly. The defense is okay, but their offense is looking bad right now. So I, while I wouldn't underestimate him, because the last time we did that, we got our butts whipped, I would, I think I feel comfortable enough setting D.D. Westbrook for that first game to really make sure that he is ready to go. Because when he's ready to go, we need him to be there, and we can't have him rushing him back and getting injured again. And You know, you don't really want to put him in that situation. So I would send him out week one, maybe week two, depending on how he's doing, and then kind of unleash him when we start to get into that part of the schedule. Against the Browns. I think against the Browns would be a great time for him to come back if we feel we need to wait that long. Yeah, I'm really intrigued about this ACL injury because I, if I remember correctly, he didn't play at all in 2020 and he missed all 16 games with that injury. So if he missed all 16 games like with the with how the ACL surgery and recovery timetable has progressed over the past 10 years, especially with Adrian Peterson, just being a freak of nature that he is tearing at Christmas Eve. And then all of a sudden coming back and starting week one and absolutely dominating. Like I, I'm a little concerned that he's not even like cleared to play in a preseason game. Like uh, if you want to send him, that's great. I, I, I will not fight you on it, but he's, it doesn't even feel like he's been cleared. So I feel like that's a worrisome element to this whole thing. So maybe your week four timetable that could very well be plausible, but it's, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a little, a little nervous about D.D. Westbrook moving forward because of that. But I think uh, in the chat, they want to move on to these big guys mm-hmm. up front. I think everybody is excited about Ali Udo, man. I Dave, are you I controlling all the people in the chat so they can talk about your big uglies? <laughs> I am not, but I'm loving it. I know you are. Man, the cleanups that I saw from Ali Udo and Ezra Cleveland was so – they like – and I loved that the Colts put 
Bradbury in that position to where they kind of singled him out with a couple pass rushers and his anchor actually kind of held up. But when it started to give a little bit, Udo cleaned up uh, Buckner. I think Ezra cleaned up Buckner too. And then they cleaned up his, uh, their other D tackle. So that guard play is looking to be much better. I, so I wasn't really worried about Ezra Cleveland starting off because his trend was always up. He had those two really bad games last season. I think I mentioned this before on another on the other show that I think in like two games he gave up like 15 pressures and like four sacks. And then the rest of his games he gave up like nine pressures and zero sacks. So he's always been trending up. He got a chance to move to back to his left side. There was always, you know, there's there was hope for him. Now, Ali was kind of more of a wild card. We didn't know what he can do. He was kicking inside. He's a massive man who can move. We didn't know how quick he was going to be, but he did well. And he's also, he's not really in the position to be singled up on like three tech kind of players. So maybe he'll deal more with the stunts with Brian O'Neill. Him and Brian O'Neill worked together so well. Like those two were like built to play next to each other. They opened up a massive hole several times. They handled stunts really well. So this offensive line, man, there is there's so much hope. <laughs> I mean, I know it was only a couple snaps against a somewhat iffy defensive line, but Buckner is a great player, even though he only played three mm-hmm. snaps. There's hope there. We just got to find out how to survive Rashad Hill because <laughs> he got cooked by Quiddy Pay, man. And I love I love Quiddy Pay. I knew that Quiddy mm-hmm. Pay can do that stuff. But just like not to my team, like don't don't do that to us. He destroyed Rashad Hill yeah. out there. I don't don't know why Clinton left him on the island. I mean, I know he's just a rookie, but man, he got that was not encouraging at all to see Hill get beat like that. Mm-hmm. No, I agree completely. Uh, Hill is a guy that you would uh, throw out there for a game, two games. He, it, yeah, I think you could talk about him as an elite swing tackle. Like, you're not going to find guys that are better than him as kind of your sixth offensive lineman unless you draft one in round one or two. Like, he, he's a great guy for his slot on the team. And you're not going to find many better in the league. But if you're talking about starting him for a long period of time, like, just imagine how much worse that 2018 offensive line would have been if Hill didn't get hurt in week two against the Packers and Brian O'Neill didn't step in and play as well as he did. It could have been way worse. I think if we're talking about starting uh, Rashad Hill uh, week four against the Browns and Derrissaw is still not back yet, I think that's about time to hit the panic button. Like one rough start in preseason, considering he didn't play last week, I'm not going to hit it right now. I think he's still a very solid, serviceable piece to this offensive line who can fill in when needed. And I think he's going to do just that right away. And over time, we're going to have to really work on that transition to Derrissaw and just let him get his feet wet and let him kind of figure it out on the fly. Uh, Derrissaw was one of my favorite players in college football last year, did a fantastic job for a Virginia Tech team, and really paved the way with some nasty blocking for Khalil Herbert. And uh, if Derrissaw can figure out how to be a consistent and violent finisher, he's got some violent power to his game. And I'm really excited to see how that translates, especially when you're going to ask him to climb to the second level where he can just take out guys who are like, 50 to 100 pounds lighter than him. Like I know I know it gets Dave excited to see a guy just annihilate people. So that it, it'll be interesting. Uh Rashad Hill is for me is a it's not a non-factor. Um, but he's I'm not worried. Uh, and then to kind of talk about your point with the guards, man, they were 
good, like genuinely good. And I was watching, uh, I was watching a little speed through because I didn't really get to watch a whole lot on Saturday because I was cooking a couple large pork butts on my new smoker. But it was, it was really cool to see uh, them do cleanup stuff, them feeling comfortable against a guy like DeForest Buckner, who arguably is on the same level as Aaron Donald as an interior player. Like he is a fantastic specimen and the, how they struggled with him last year and how they were able to uh, be a cohesive unit with Cleveland being on the left side of Bradbury now and Udo really never having played guard. It felt like they had been working together for a couple years just with how good their chemistry was and how they were able to handle that. That to me was the biggest positive sign of the weekend. Uh, and I was really, really, really liking what I saw. Bradbury did not get blown up by DeForest Buckner, <laughs> which I think is the biggest victory of them all. And like, just continue to work on it, continue to be a cohesive unit. And the biggest thing with offensive line is not having a weak spot. If you can do that, this unit could be much, much improved. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned the Browns game. I actually have that. I had that as the game that gets Hill benched. I think he can survive against the Bengals. I think he'll do fine. I think the Cardinals, he might end up struggling a little bit. I think he does fine against the Seahawks. But that Browns game, switching between Clowney and Garrett, I think he gets exposed. I think he has a really bad game. I think that's where they kind of say, all right, Darisol, we kind of need you in there. And I think that's a great timetable for Darisol. I think, I mean, after you kind of get out of the way of, you know, Chandler Jones, Miles Garrett, and Jadavion Clowney, he gets to kind of settle in and, you know, start to play some of those lesser guys before he gets into where we have to play like the Steelers or the Ravens and stuff like that. So I, I like that timetable for Darisol. Um, I do think that, and I think I tweeted somewhere about this. I know left tackle is, you know, the most important position on the offensive line, but our problem spots have been the interior. If we can significantly clean that up, you can scheme around helping your left tackle. Now, those those uh, yeah. fake toss pitch rollouts, I thought those those were fantastic plays. I thought that was great play calling, very creative. It moved the pocket away from Hill, and it really gave Kirk time to throw the ball, even though he, you know, he missed some open guys, unfortunately. But I think I like I love that play call aspect of it. They have an H-back in Ham. They have guys in Dalvin Cook and Conklin and Irv who can chip re- very well. They can scheme around giving Hill help. I think that, but that's all up to Clint Kubiak. It's all up to Clint Kubiak to not leave Hill on an island by himself against good players. And I think you'll see, like you said, this offensive line do better. And I was just aiming for average. I'm still not going to aim too high, but I feel like these guys, like you said, these guys look like they've been playing together for a long time. And that might just be, you know, a tip of the cap to the new offensive line coach. Um, I've seen from reporters that he's loud. He's in these guys' face. He's yelling at them. Maybe that's what they needed. <laughs> and maybe this is what's getting them to play well. You know, it very well could be. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know if there's something uh, uh, spiked in the water in Egan at TCO Performance Center. Whatever it is, it's working. And let's continue that. 
Uh, maybe it is as simple as not having Dennison in as that main voice in the meeting room <laughs> and on the field. You know, I, I don't want to bury Dennison uh, because he has done a lot of really good things. The run game concepts are fantastic, but there is something uh, to be desired, especially in the area of pass blocking. So uh, we'll kind of see moving forward how much of that maybe was Dennison's fault with the transition to the new offensive line coach and that the new voices on the field as far as the the lead, the the voice of authority. So I'm really excited to kind of see that. We got a couple more topics quick, and then we are going to take off here on this Monday evening. Uh, Cousins in the offense, they're not very good right now. And I think there are a couple things that really need to be taken into context with this. They are still without Christian Derrissaw. They are not playing Dalvin Cook or Justin Jefferson. This is a very manila playbook. They are calling basic stuff. They are not utilizing a traditional game plan type playbook. They're not scheming, oh, that they, they do this, so we're, and we're going to attack this. You don't want to do a lot of that stuff. You want to call basic concepts. You want to see how they can move the ball down the field. They weren't very good. Cousins just still feels off after being in quarantine. You know, Cousins traditionally doesn't start the season strong anyway. So how worried are you, Deshaun? I'm not super worried because we're kind of used to this cousin sliding on this, you know, spectrum of being really good and kind of being average to really bad so i'm not super worried um i swear some of the plays clint kubiak is running i've seen in madden i swear i've used some of these plays before <laughs> so <laughs> so i know his playbook is not fully open so we'll get there eventually um it, it'd been nice to see them push the ball a little bit and i think we will see that just because mike zimmer said something about it but uh someone on twitter pointed out to me last last uh Last year, the Vikings were like top five in explosive play rate, or maybe they were number one. I can't remember exactly what they said, but I think that carries over. You still have a lot of the same personnel. You're maybe looking at maybe even more time in the pocket to run those deep play action things. Thielen was open on one of those crossers. Cousins just didn't throw it. And I think that's the most important part, that the guys are still getting separation. It's just, Mm -hmm. for some reason, Cousins isn't tossing the ball. So we know what Thielen's going to do. We know what Jefferson can do. Uh, you add guys like D.D. Westbrook, Irv Smith, that just kind of increases your chance of big plays. I think they'll be fine. Uh, I think the best part about it is they now have a defense that's not going to allow what happened early last year when they played the Packers and they only had 19 minutes of possession in their first game. Stuff like that is not going to happen, and I think that's going to go a long way from us repeating what happened in the beginning of the season, especially if Cousin kind of comes out the gate kind of slow. Mm-hmm. I, 100%. I think that's uh, the Thielen pass is kind of what's always been the biggest issue with Kirk Cousins. It's not that he's not a good deep ball thrower. He is. The stats bear it out, and he throws a fantastic deep ball. It's He doesn't have the biggest can in the world, but he's accurate. He gets the ball where it needs to be. He doesn't make a ton of mistakes in that area. But I think the biggest issue is his unwillingness to take those shots when they're available. And I think that's always been a big issue with uh, Vikings fans and just analysts in general. If there's a a route open 20 yards down and a route open six yards down, and he has the full capability of hitting both of them equally, he's taking the six-yard one over the 20-yard one almost every time. And for me, that's very frustrating because you are a good deep ball thrower. This offense is built for you to take deep shots. You got to make sure you take them. And 
the fact that he's still not taking them now, the words preseason, and it matters even less. Like you can make a mistake and you can go back into the room and be like, hey, why did you make this throw? Okay, I made it because I saw this. Now that I saw this and I got picked off, I'm not making that throw again. That's why preseason and practice is so important. And the fact that he's still not willing to take those chances like, is just very frustrating. It's something we're going to have to continue to monitor throughout the year. I, I, I did think it was awesome that Thielen was still getting open. I don't think we're going to have to worry about a lot of regression from Thielen as far as a route runner uh, as he continues to get older. They said on the broadcast that yesterday was his 31st birthday, that which means he's probably starting to enter the final year or two of his prime, and he's going to really start to, to hit a decline as far as his athleticism. But the way he wins was never about being a great athlete. It was never about being the fastest guy in the field. It was about being a technician, body position, using physicality to get open. And he could do some of those things where, hey, I'm going to be explosive enough to get open anyways. But that was never his game. And I think when we saw Larry Fitzgerald transition into the slot about a decade ago, and he was able to reinvent himself. I think Thielen isn't going to have to really reinvent himself. He's going to be able to continue to do all the things that make him successful. He's just going to have to understand that there's going to need to be a little bit more nuance to continue to get to the level of open that he has been over the past few years and that he's still able to do that on a regular basis. That is a really positive sign for this football team. Yeah, and I think... This is, and I, you know, I've been against it for a long time, but I think this is the, another year where the Vikings will probably go high with receiver. Like you said, Thielen, 31, I think it's time to get that next guy that's going to pair with Jefferson for the future. Um, and it doesn't, I'm not completely slow on KJ Osborne and being that guy. We'll see if ISM can maybe step up after playing mm-hmm. some special teams, but they'll definitely start to need another target soon here. But I'm okay with Thielen for this season. He's coming off of 14 touchdowns. Didn't have a thousand yards, but he was killing people in the red zone. I think he returns to that. I think you start to see other guys get the ball more. I think they're going to run down and click into the ground this first few weeks because <laughs> we're playing some pretty average defenses. So I I think this offense will be fine. I think I'm not I'm not looking at them to be top five, even though they have the capability to be. I think they were yeah. What were they like tenth and points scored or something like that? And I think I think they'll score more points. I really do. I think they'll, they were, they'll get the ball more. They were 11th in points scored, and I think in total yards they were fourth or fifth. And I think that was the disparity that was that was really the main issue when talking about the Vikings' offense over the course of the offseason. Yeah, so I think we'll see those points scored go up. by Not by a lot, but I think you'll, you'll see them move into the top five at, in points scored as their defense starts to get them the ball back. They get shorter fields. Hopefully they make some more field goals. Uh, so I think in that aspect, you'll see them score a lot more points. And I think that kind of all everything they've done this offseason together will kind of stop the offense from regressing. No, I agree. And last but not least, Deshaun, the segment that we are trying to make the funnest segment of the week here on the Climbing the Pocket Network here on YouTube, Player of the Week. And uh, I, I'm i going to start off with a little bit of a unique one. Um, I'm going to give it to Armand Watts. And I loved uh, the first few drives of the game. Armand Watts was uh, – he was not being moved. He was being explosive at getting into and penetrating gaps. Uh, he wasn't super flashy, but I saw a lot from him. 
And when you talk about that defensive line depth and how Zimmer really likes to rotate guys in and out, Armand Watts taking that next step with a possibility of not having either Michael Pierce or Sheldon Richardson next year to, so we can be more flexible at the cap, I think uh, Armand Watts could utilize this opportunity, learn a lot from both of those guys because they do different things, and he could be a, an incredibly valuable asset for this football team. Yeah, I, I loved his aggressiveness in pass rushing, and mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's somewhere he needs to focus on. I need I love that he wants to be aggressive. He wants to get after the passer, and I think that that's a great spot for him. Uh, I definitely agree with that. He played a great game. Um, that tip on the pass that was intercepted was fantastic. He was playing great in run defense. He was all around great game, and this is not the first time we've seen that from him, which is encouraging. We've seen him do this before. Uh, I remember the first time... I want to say 2019 against the Cowboys, where I think like he got a run stop on all of his snaps. He only played like five snaps, but I had I think he recorded like five run stops or something insane. So mm-hmm. we've seen this from him before. I love to see him build on it. I'm not. I saw that they had Sheldon Richardson out there with the second team. I know he's like not technically a starter, but he's like almost like that starter slash backup player. So I think they really like the rotation of Richardson Watts. And something that they're going to use a lot, especially on pass rushing downs. So I would love to see him continue that aggressiveness and get after the quarterback more. If he can become another 30 pressure guy from the inside, that just makes this pass rush all the more dangerous. And like you said, Mm -hmm. if he can continue, he can be next year. gives us some cap flexibility. We don't have to keep all these guys. My guy, I'm going with uh, the beloved Ali Udo. He uh, went out there. He looks like he belonged. The situation did not look too big for him. He did great. He he moves well. And that was I know he he can move. I know he can he's like unusually good on his feet for such a large individual. But I think just seeing him do it is great, man. Seeing him drive people, seeing him ex- execute those uh stunt plays. I think that's that's just great. He looks like he belonged next to O'Neal and Bradbury. I think, like you said, they like these guys have been playing together for years. Um, just from where he came from, doing good in his preseason 2019, and now finally getting his chance to show that he probably should have been able to compete last season. I think I got to give it to Ali. He didn't play too many snaps, but he made the most of all of them. Ali Udo is a guy that I've been keeping my eye on, and I know he was a guy for you when the Vikings drafted him. Uh, just he's a specimen. Like you don't get guys who can move that well at that size with power. Like if the Vikings can turn him into another sixth round success story on the offensive line, that's going to be a massive, massive victory. Final thoughts to Sean. Um, Kellen Mond had a couple really, really nice throws. PFF had him as the lowest graded offensive player for the Minnesota Vikings on Saturday. I'm not concerned because he's still learning. He missed almost two full weeks of training camp and he's a project anyways. He's going to be a guy that you're going to groom and hope he can take over next year or the year after, but to see him look more comfortable that be able to kind of make reads across the field and make really nice throws, including one, on a, on a sale route where he just got obliterated from the backside. I still saw some positivity in his game and the Mon Pond is strong and we are having fun and hopefully he can become the future of this team. What were your uh, thoughts on Mon? 
he he played I was frustrated with Kellerman because I feel like he was just on the cusp of playing really well. There were a few plays where he had an opportunity to do something well and he just didn't. Now I remember specifically, I think it was like a fourth down play, maybe a third down play. Uh he kind of got some pushback from the center but he had an open lane to just take off and he didn't, or at least scoot out of the way to buy himself some more time, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. And there's plays like that. And then there's a play like you mentioned, the one that got called back from holding when ISM was running a crosser, he stood in the pocket, he took the hit, made a great throw. And then again, um, on the same play where I felt like there was a play coming out of Madden, he had a read on the seam where the guy was open for a split second, but the safety was sitting on it, waiting for him to make that throw, and he didn't. He waited for his in-cut to come, and he made another great throw. So he's progressing week to week. He just hasn't put it all together yet. But for some reason, I, there's like it's like the small things, like you know, just sliding the pocket a little bit or maybe taking off a little bit more. It's good for the, for the long run. Because, like you said, he's a project. He's still two years out from playing any meaningful snaps. But I feel like I, I feel like he's like right there to where he's like almost there to put it all together. Maybe it would be differently if he didn't miss those ten days with COVID. You know, get your vaccinations, people. But <laughs> I just think it's like it's frustrating because you know you see these guys. You know, you see Fields out there doing okay. You, Lawrence is like getting beat up by that Jack's offensive line. Zach Wilson is doing great. And I feel like Mon is just like right on the cuffs of being up there with those guys. I'm gonna have to disagree there. I I, I think he's got a lot of lot longer and farther way to go, but you and I have some differing opinions on Kellen Mond, and that's one of the things that makes the show good. We we have different viewpoints and it it makes things good. Uh, Dave, before I sign us off here for the evening. Do you have any final thoughts for the good people here out in YouTube land? Oh, absolutely. When would I wouldn't? Um, first off, I want to thank everybody that's joined us. And as Dan says, Mon's not ready. That's his takeaway. Mon's the third round draft choice. He's not going to be ready. It's going to take some grooming and growing. That's just the way it is. Now, you're talking about player of the game. You guys didn't even mention the man that was flying all around and got his first pick. Pick six of the game, Mr. Troy Die, was just everywhere during the game. I thought he did fantastic. Um, now, I agree. Oliudo, awesome. Cleveland, awesome. This just got me good. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> Now, tomorrow night, we have In the Huddle. And as many of you know, all the Climbing the Pocket personalities gather in one spot on Twitter. we got our own private little group. And it has been fiery today. There's been disagreements mm-hmm. over wide receivers, over quarterbacks, over what Zim's doing, over all sorts of things. And that's going to flow over to tomorrow night's show. So make sure you watch. And until then. Huh? Oh, I I was I was just gonna sign us off there, Dave. (laughs) Hey, let let me tell you, uh, we appreciate you uh coming on um from Sean, from Dave, and myself. Come join us next week where we turn your Monday purple.
Absolutely, skull everybody! Thanks for watching. Like, subscribe, and ring the bell. And if you're listening on your favorite aggregator, make sure you rate us. And always feel free to join the conversation here at Climbing the Pipe.